Turn with me now to the Gospel of Matthew as I read from the 27th chapter, verses 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Hope you have your Bibles open to that passage of Scripture which we just heard in our reading, Matthew, the 27th chapter where we will be taking many of the thoughts of our study together this morning. Certainly are grateful for the privilege to be together this Lord's Day. We are glad that we have the opportunity to worship our God and to remember Jesus and His sacrifice. We're glad that we are able to be together with each and every one of you that is here present this morning. We have those who are visiting with us. We are especially grateful that you have chosen to come and to be with us this Lord's Day. We are thankful that we have that opportunity to see you. We hope that you will stick around and visit with us once our services come to a conclusion this morning so that we can get to know you a little bit better. Jesus died a humiliating, painful, excruciating death. In Matthew chapter 27, And in verse 35, Matthew records, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Imagine the pain and the anguish and then hearing those words. Or people are mocking you and wagging their heads at you. But then they tell you, if you really are the Son of God, come down from the cross. We'll believe you then. The one thing that Jesus could not do, if he were going to accomplish the plan of God, and if he was going to do 
what God had sent him to do. The New Testament shows us that by Jesus' death, he secured eternal salvation. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, in Hebrews chapter 5 and in verses 8 and 9, the Hebrew writer says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That through his suffering suffering and through his death, Jesus secured eternal salvation for those who would believe and obey him. But to the Jews, crucifixion was a curse. It appeared that God had cursed Jesus. Someone that God despised. And yet it is through the instrument of the cross that God is demonstrating His power to save. And at Calvary, on Golgotha's hill, God demonstrated His power and His abilities performing some miraculous wonders that imply and further indicate to us exactly who Jesus is, that He is the Son of God and He is the source of our salvation. God took what appeared to be a curse and turned it into a demonstration of His grace and the salvation that He offers through Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, and beginning at verse 45, in the reading that we heard just before us, We read of three events that occur here at the cross. That occur at the death of Christ. That really stand out to us. And I think have some important lessons for us to think about, meditate about, and to really consider this morning. And the first thing that I want us to think about is the darkness that occurred on the land. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. While Jesus was crucified, the sun was darkened, and that correlates or corresponds to hour 12 to 3 p.m. when the sun is beginning to reach its highest point of the day. All of a sudden, things go dark. And it's funny to read those who are very natural in their explanations that they don't believe in miracles, they don't believe in anything supernatural, that they want to try to explain this away through natural causes. Like a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse. First off, a lunar eclipse can only occur at night, so that's impossible to have accomplished at 12 to 3 p.m. <laughs> so that is no explanation. And the timing of Jesus' death would not allow for a solar eclipse to have caused the darkness at Calvary. Perhaps you were here back last summer when Mary Beth's dad was here, Jeff Asher. He was preaching a sermon on this very subject, on the darkness that occurred. He had cups, and I'm not going to try to explain that. I'm going to try to just give you a picture here for you to see. But what you will see, the Jews, they used a 
a lunar calendar. And at the beginning of each new month, there would be a new moon. Where the new moon would be, that's when a solar eclipse could occur. Because a solar eclipse occurs when the moon passes between the earth and the sun. The sun's rays are then blocked by the moon and the earth is darkened. Those events only last for around 12 minutes. And it can only happen, according to the Jewish calendar, at the first of a month. But when you think about when Jesus died, he died at the time of Passover and the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would have been about the 14th and 15th day of the month. This is another image that would show you the moon cycles. And so, of course, being on the 14th and 15th day of the month, you're right smack in the middle of the month, aren't you? You have a full moon. You don't have a new moon. And so you could not have a solar eclipse that would explain the darkness that was experienced at Golgotha. The only explanation that we are left with is that God is the one who caused this darkness. Jesus demonstrates that He being God, is the one who is able to have power and control over His creation. God the Father, He is the one who has power and control over His creation, including the sun, moon, and stars. In Mark's Gospel, in Mark the fourth chapter, in Mark chapter 4, you'll remember the occasion perhaps when Jesus and His disciples, they are... They witness Jesus, and they are on the boat, and there is this fierce wind, and they are afraid, with water beginning to fill up the boat. And Jesus, he was asleep. And then he came, he woke up, and he rebuked the wind in verse 39 of Mark chapter 4. Hush, be still, is what he said. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Jesus then rebukes the disciples. But in verse 41, notice here, in Mark chapter 4 and verse 41, it says, They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? We see demonstration of God's power over His creation throughout the whole Bible. Going back to the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 9, whenever the plague of darkness that occurred in Egypt. God demonstrated His power. What I've always been impressed with in that plague in particular was that here you are in Egypt and it's dark, but over in the land of Goshen where the Israelites live, it's full and complete light. I would have loved to have seen that, wouldn't you? But God has power over His creation where He can cause in the same geographical location where one place it's light and one place it's dark. <laughs> and as Exodus says, it's darkness that could have been felt. That is by the power and the demonstration of God. In Joshua chapter 10, when the Israelites are in battle, Joshua prays that 
God might extend the day, essentially. And that's exactly what he does. He extends that day so that they are able to complete the battle. In 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah and his uh, illness and his prayers, he's, he asks for a sign and he says anyone can cause the, the sun to go forward. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. It's a whole other thing to cause it to go backwards. And that's what God does to demonstrate His great power. God has power over His creation. And the darkness at the cross, it shows us that God was there and He was watching these events. And it's interesting to think about that in the life of Jesus, there are two major astronomical events that bookend the very life of Christ. Going back to Matthew chapter 2, you remember there was the star that appeared that guided the wise men to come to find the child Jesus, where they gave him his gifts and they worshiped him. That star appeared announcing and signaling Jesus' birth, the birth of the king. And then at the end of Jesus' life, here in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45, from the, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. The darkness that signaled Jesus' death. And I can't help but imagine that what this was implying and the lessons behind it was that this darkness was symbolizing the rejection of God's Son. The true light that had come into the world. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, in John chapter 3 and in verse 19, John writes this, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That darkness should have been, what well, should have made them feel right at home, shouldn't it? Because they were rejecting the true light that had come into the world. The darkness of that day contrasts itself so amazingly with the light, which is Christ. It's again in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 8. In John the 8th chapter, and in verse 12, when John writes, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Here you are at the crucifixion of Christ. And imagine you see this great darkness that transpires in the middle of the day. When you would expect it to, the sun to be at its brightest, highest peak. And the only light that you could possibly see would be the light of Christ. You have to come to accept who He is. The darkness of that day, it speaks of the gravity of sin and the sad necessity of Jesus' death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 4. He's talking about those who do not believe the gospel and have rejected it. He says, in those in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The darkness that occurred there at the cross, it should point us to the light of Christ and the salvation and the hope of light found in the gospel. We sang the song this morning at the cross. And in that third verse in particular, the writer, he speaks of the darkness that hid the sun and when Christ the mighty maker died for the creature's sin. He eloquently and beautifully, poetically speaks of that. But it's really in the chorus that I find it to be an interesting use of irony there. Because when there is darkness, there's no light, right? But then what does he say in the chorus? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burdens of my heart rolled away, and it was there by faith that I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. That even in the midst of the darkness of that day, true light was shining in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have to be humbled and amazed by that. That was not the only occurrence that happened there on that day that was miraculous in nature or supernatural or a wonder that you might be amazed at. There was a second event that occurred. The tearing of the temple veil. In Matthew chapter 27, in Matthew chapter 27, and in verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The Gospels record that the temple veil was torn in half. Torn in two from top to bottom. And what I think might escape our attention and our notice because we are putting so much attention and focus on the death of Christ in this moment. What we might forget about was that this was a normal day for the rest of the Jews, wasn't it? This is in the midst of Passover. And this being on Friday, the next day was going to be the Sabbath day. 
And so you know what you were doing at about this time, about 3 p.m. on Friday, you were getting ready because you only had three more hours until sundown. And that's when the new day would begin for the Jew. That's when the Sabbath day would begin. And so at the temple of this, at this time of day when Jesus died, it would have been extraordinarily busy. The tearing of that temple veil would not have gone unnoticed. People would have seen it. And in that time of day, it was very common for prayers to be offered in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, and in verse 8, as Zacharias, the father of John, husband of Elizabeth, as he is a priest and appointed to go about to perform the priestly customs. Notice in Luke chapter 1 and in verse 10, it says, And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. That was occurring at about the same time in the evening time. Now you would have had people at the temple on a holy day at the temple praying and offering sacrifices. And here you are, you're at the temple, the place where you go and worship, and at the death of Christ, that veil is torn in two. That was no doily cloth and thin material. You know, if you've ever flown on an airplane, and you see that curtain that divides first class from where the rest of us probably sit. <laughs> you know, that curtain, it, it, it's, it, you can still see. I've always, I've always wanted, like, what's going on? I want to go up there. I want to see what's going on in first class, you know. And you can see through it sometimes, or you can see around it. Not with this. Not with the temple veil. It was a very thick veil. And the veil is what separated the holy place from the most holy place. That veil was used to prevent the Ark of the Covenant from being seen. In the book of Exodus, where we get all the instructions about the construction of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and that veil in Exodus chapter 40 and in verse 3. It says, you shall place the Ark of the Covenant, or Ark of the Testimony there, and you shall screen the Ark with the veil that it's not supposed to be seen. It was used to hide the Ark while the tabernacle and its furniture were being transported even, we learn in the book of Numbers. And only one man was authorized to go beyond the veil, and that only occurred once each year on the Day of Atonement. <laughs> And violation of that, of going in at the inappropriate time, would result in death. This was no small event that occurred. But what is the significance behind it? Well, the Hebrew writer explains that to us, I think, very well. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, 
beginning in verse 6. It says, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. What he's saying is that under the old covenant economy, under the old covenant system, that the tabernacle, all of that, the system of sacrifices and the veil, everything, it was a symbol, it was a sign pointing us to something greater that would come. He says in verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Peter would tell us that we are all priests to God. We all have direct access to God through Jesus, our great high priest. Now we can all worship God with a pure and undefiled conscience. In Hebrews chapter 10, in the next chapter over in Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 19, notice what the Hebrew writer says here. He says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great, high, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What this signifies is that the old covenant has been done away and now we are under the new covenant of Christ. The old covenant guarded access to God. Now we all have access to God. The old covenant was a system of washings and regulations that were unable to purify the inner man. But now through the blood of Christ, that system has been done away. Now we have the blood of Christ that offers atonement and forgiveness and perfection. That now worshipers are made perfect for God. And we can appeal to our great high priest where we can find grace and mercy in time of need. That when that veil of the temple was torn in half, it was doing away with that old covenant system and showing that through Jesus and through His death, we have confidence to enter into the presence of God. And only through the death of Christ is that possible. Then there was one final 
thing that I want us to think about this morning, turning back to Matthew chapter 27. And that is the great earthquake that occurred. In Matthew chapter 27, in verse 51, it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. On that Friday after Jesus died, there was an earthquake. Not to be confused with just what's on the next page over in my Bible is the earthquake that occurred when the angel appeared at the resurrection. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 2 it says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. We're not talking about that earthquake this morning. The Friday earthquake. We learn that it caused the rocks to split. But that's not all. Notice what happens in verse 52 and 53. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. I'm going to venture a guess that you've probably not heard just a whole lot of sermons about those verses. And if you've ever wondered why, it's probably because only Matthew is the one who talks about it. <laughs> the rocks were split and the tombs were open and the bodies of the saints were raised. And what you need to also recognize is that they did not come out of their tombs until after Jesus' resurrection. You may be thinking, what is the significance in all of this? I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to consider with me that the fact that the tombs were opened, and this is just a mere hours before the start of the Sabbath day when no work would be done. And coming into contact with the deceased body would cause you to be unclean which no Jew would want to do entering into the Sabbath day. Those tombs aren't going to be closed or repaired until after the Sabbath. Which has many implications for us. As Christians, as believers in the resurrection of Christ. Because the fact that the tombs were open would mean that the only tomb that was sealed that weekend was the tomb of Jesus. 
In Matthew chapter 27 and in verse 59, notice after Joseph takes the body of Christ, he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, that preparation for the Sabbath day, so they don't resume talking about this until Sunday, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he said, when he was still alive, that that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. The only grave in Jerusalem in about that area that was sealed and guarded was the tomb of Jesus. Think about that. The only tomb that they had to be concerned about with grave robbers perhaps trying to come in and and take and snatch away the body of Christ would be the one single tomb where Jesus' body laid. And yet skeptics, they want to tell us that, well, they just forgot where the body of Jesus was laid. (laughs) Or skeptics want to tell us that Roman soldiers weren't good at crucifixion. I mean, I, I, I question government bureaucracy as much as the next guy. But I think the Roman soldiers would have been very effective in being able to guard one single tomb. There was only one tomb in Jerusalem that was sealed and guarded. And of course that shows the absurdity that grave robbers took the body of Jesus. Only one tomb needed to be guarded that weekend because all the other tombs were opened. Only one tomb had the threat of a grave robber. And that tomb was sealed and closed by a stone. No one could have misidentified the tomb of Jesus. All other tombs were open with their bodies still in them. (laughs) Those bodies remained in their tombs until Sunday when Jesus came out of the grave. And what this means is that whenever you think about this, the opening of all the tombs, it becomes a validation for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because you want to know what those saints began to do? In verse 53, it says those saints who had been raised, they came out of the tombs after His resurrection. They entered the holy city and appeared to many. In Luke chapter 7, I know that may seem odd for many of us, 
But in Luke chapter 7, Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son who had died. He brought him back to life like he did with Lazarus. And in Luke chapter 7, it says in verse 14, And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. The people that were there, that saw the bringing back and the reanimation of the widow of Nain's son, they began to glorify God. What do you think? Those saints in Matthew chapter 27, that after they are raised and they go back into the city of Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ, what do you think they're saying about Jesus? They're saying that the Son of God who was dead, He is alive again. They are giving glory to God. And that's why all these miraculous events, the darkness and the temple veil and the earthquake, they lead us to the conclusions that others saw and began to do that day. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54, it says, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. After witnessing the darkness and the temple veil that was torn in two, and then knowing about the tombs that were opened, there's only one conclusion that you can come to. That this man was the Son of God. Or as Luke records the centurion that says, certainly this man was Innocent. But then what did it do to the disciples? Have you ever wondered that? Matthew is an apostle and he is recording these events. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 19... In John, the 19th chapter, and in verse 38, we learn a little bit more about Joseph of Arimathea here. The man, the disciple who asked for Jesus' body. It says in John chapter 19 and verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. What all of this occurred, all these happenings, all these wonders, it emboldened the disciples of Jesus, even the ones who were secretly disciples, those who were afraid 
seeing the power of God and the demonstration of God, that day when Jesus died, it emboldened them to go out and serve and to no longer be afraid. To believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The miraculous wonders at Calvary all point to these ultimate truths that we must believe in, that we must be ready to accept, and that we need to be ready to be emboldened to go and serve and follow Jesus. Just as Joseph of Arimathea did. The death of Jesus is intended to leave us with these convictions that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins. And through His death, through His sacrifice, we may be saved. And through His resurrection, we have anticipation of our own resurrection when Jesus returns to take us home to glory. But we need to be a disciple of Christ. We need to be a follower of Jesus. And that means that we need to follow Him completely and entirely. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, he talks about how we are united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus, then you need to follow Him in His death and in His resurrection. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Have you been united with Jesus in His death? And his resurrection. Have you put away that old man of sin? Have you been baptized, immersed in water to have your sins washed away completely by the blood of Christ? If you haven't, we urge you and encourage you to come this morning. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. As the one who gave his life, the innocent one who gave his life for you. So that you could have life everlasting. And if you need to be baptized, the water is ready. We're ready to help you become a child of God, a disciple of Jesus. Be emboldened. Follow Jesus like Joseph of Arimathea did. Don't be afraid any longer. Turn away from your sins. If we can help you in some way this morning, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?